recent study looks at the Arab Spring, or some calls it the Arab Uprising's impact on media habits in the Middle East. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. Today, Dr. Everett Dennis joins Fordham Conversations by phone. He's the former chair of the Communication and Media Management Department at Fordham University's Graduate School of Business. He now serves as dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar. Dr. Dennis is here to discuss the study, Media Use in the Middle East. Welcome, Dr. Dennis. Thank you very much, Robin. Always good to be back with you. So can you start with uh, giving me some background? What events led to the, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Arab Springs uprising. Sure. So can you tell me about uh, the background of that? Sure. And our study is uh, reflecting back on that. This is the fifth year, almost the sixth year, we've done a review of how people are using the media. And of course, uh, social media were very important in igniting and, and sustaining the Arab Spring, which was, of course, something of a, uh, a revolution in a number of states uh, where new governments took charge and where uh, certain kinds of uh, values involving freedom and independence uh, prevailed for a while. It's, uh, it's been rocky since that time. Some countries where there were uprisings and changes of government have gone back to older patterns. Others have not. But we, we were very interested because how people communicate across a region of the world we need to know a great deal about uh, is important. And seeing the change in people's attitudes and what's going on uh, gives you some depth uh, and some perspective on what people are thinking and how they actually navigate uh, the media system, social media or traditional news outlets, uh, Newspapers, radio, television, magazines, television itself uh, is is really a, a fascinating indicator of a changing contour of the culture of the region. So, was the Arab Spring a movement towards more political democracy? Yes, that was its goal, and, and of course, it was slightly different in each of the many countries. Whether one is talking about Egypt or or Tunisia or Libya and other places, there have been some successes and then some failures in all of that. But that was certainly the uh, the, the inspiration for what was going on. And there was some thought there was going to be a, a rapid revolution that would lead to massive change across the region. That was unrealistic from the get-go. But on the other side of the equation, some people write it off as well with just an aberration, and things are as draconian, draconian and uh, dictatorial as they were in the past. And that's really not quite true, although it's a mixed bag in the, in the Middle East and, and a lot of turbulence and difficulty always. And it's, of course, very important on the radar screen of the United States and our, our foreign policy. And we've had wars in the region, of course, uh, uh, and in Iraq, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we worry about uh, this, Syria, which is, of course, ongoing now in places like Yemen. So it's, uh, it's a hot spot in the world and continues to be so. And in the midst of this hot spot, Northwestern University in Qatar recently released the study, Media Use in the Middle East. So can you give me an overview of the report? I'd like to look at it individually in a minute, but sure. give me some of the highlights of the report. Sure, absolutely, Robin. As you know, we started this study back in 2012, published the first one in, in 2013, have done it each year. It's, it's the only longitudinal study of its kind over time where we ask the same questions again and again. In uh, either in eight countries, sometimes some sometimes in seven countries, sometimes in six, but to try to generalize about what's happening in the region, whether it's looking at what we used to think of as a media poor state, like or the poor state itself, like uh, Egypt, or the Gulf states of uh, Qatar or the UAE, which uh, are wealthier and have uh, you know greater access to the Internet and, and other media 
So our purpose was to just get a, a, a kind of perspective and, and a, a, a review of what's going on, what people are reading, doing, uh, how they're getting information, what they believe and don't believe, not only how they're using things. I mean, how many hours a day do you spend online, for example, or how many hours a week, uh, or how much time do you spend watching television? That's important, but more important is people's attitudes about freedom, about censorship, about other issues that are evident from uh, you know, from media use, and uh, so we do that. We do it also because we have a school in Doha, Qatar, and Northwestern has a campus there along with five other American universities, and uh, we want our students to be prepared and to know the landscapes that they're going into and working on, and we do it with a sense of aspiration. We care a lot about independent media and and uh, for, uh, freedom of expression, and while that's not anywhere near what it would be in the West at this point, we're seeing changes over time, we're seeing new developments that are important, and so we're privileged to be part of that and to be observing what's going on and listening to local people, uh, because many of our students are locals and they need to know the kind of information that's being derived from our studies. Yeah, because that way they'll really understand what they need to cover, what they need to look at, what issues are important. So um, evidently this study is going to be extremely important to uh, the university, but also in general. So in the report, it found, as you said, changes in attitude about about media uh, and their use throughout the Middle East. So can we go into them a little bit more specifically? So you said there was changes in the attitude about, let's say, censorship. So what was it and what did it change to? Well, that's a complicated one. I think for the most part, there's a great deal of interest in freedom of information. People want greater freedom than they have had in the past. On the other hand, they tend to believe local information that's generated locally rather than that that comes internationally. They want things delivered in their own language. They want to uh, be online and be able to uh, do all kinds of things that people, you know, want to use the internet for. You know, whether expressing their opinions, consumer information, checking their mail, uh, downloading music. There's just a real dynamism. I think the image in the West is that desert countries, people on camels, and and, and not very much sophistication. That's just not not the case. It's a, one of the most uh, uh, heavily trafficked internet places in the world. The average person across the Middle East spends about just almost 30 hours a week online. Fewer in you know fewer hours in a country like Egypt and more in a country like the UAE or Qatar, but very engaged. Uh, and uh, you know I think it's uh, it's important issues like well for example political expression. Uh, the internet of course increases the contact people have expressing their political views. Uh, not eliminated exposure to differing views. We thought that might be might happen. People might just migrate toward their own points of view. They're not doing that. The, the whole question of whether it's safe to say what you want to about politics online. We're seeing some developments there where it is. Uh, we're seeing some changes and people feeling somewhat more comfortable. The idea that it's okay to express your ideas on the internet, even if they're unpopular. Back in the day, well, that we've kind of lost a bit on. It used to be about 59% during the Arab Spring, and that's gone down to 44%. So uh, it isn't all good news, but from a standpoint of free expression, but much better than it had been. And certainly there's a concern about privacy, uh, big issue with the Internet, of course. Uh, some people want more regulation, which I found it very, very interesting. Mm. Back in the day, it was people were, well, I guess we've seen some change there in the sense of desire for tighter Internet regulation is increasing, not because people want to censor speech, but rather because they want to secure privacy protection. 
to make the Internet accessible, more accessible, and watch their own privacy and making sure that people, uh, you know, are not imposing their views on them. So people are in the Middle East, of course, are very concerned about social attitudes, about uh, religious expression and that sort of thing, and they don't like to see that blotted out by, by too much criticism. So these are all, you know, interesting ideas. It's interesting, though, that people are more worried about private companies uh, looking at uh, their material online than they are about governments, which would not be not be so much true here. Uh, uh, and I think that all has to do with uh, identity theft and cybercrime. So they're more concerned with, less concerned with the political structure looking at their information and more concerned with identity theft. Right. And Similar with, to what's any kind here. of private, you know, private companies, you know, selling their wares and impairing your privacy by going online and being able to figure out everything you're doing. And speaking of social media, um, what type of social media use has increased and what has decreased? Well, you know, Internet use in general has gone up. And we're seeing a decrease, for example, ironically, in Facebook, which was kind of the the lingua franca of the region for a long time, an increase in Instagram and WhatsApp and in, in applications like that. A decrease in Twitter, for example, in spite of the Trump Twitter revolution. YouTube use has gone way up. Snapchat has gone up. So it's basically people's viewing and User user habits kind of go up and down. Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, YouTube, or Snapchat, and Facebook still has the greatest penetration in the region. But all of these other competitive, sometimes competitors, sometimes uh, not so much, uh, social media uh, are on the move as well. I noticed that here in uh, the United States, there has been also a decrease in Facebook, which is considered for older Americans, and an increase in, like, you know, the Instagrams and Snapchats, because younger people are taking part in, in looking at that media. Is it the same in Qatar? Is it that the older generation is on Facebook and younger folks are on Snapchat? Yeah, that's it. I think we're seeing, a, you know, I think the millennials and people coming after the millennials are more likely to move off of, of Facebook. They may use it for some things, but they're they're more versatile in in other in other channels. And I think they do perceive it as an old person's medium, which is kind of ironic. Uh, <laughs> but things things do change over time, and it's so fast. That's why we do this study every year, because people's predilections for social media and their trends and their, you know, their habit, much habits is just very fickle as to what they'll stick with for a period of time. I think that's important as to how people are communicating and what they're communicating, what they believe and don't believe in all this stuff that's, in, that's around them, that spite of the decline of traditional media, and it's gone way down in use in the Middle East and around the world, for that matter, the social media are, are triumphing. On the other hand, almost every traditional medium, whether it's a radio station or a magazine, has a website. And so it's kind of hard to, to say that they're not also picking up converts. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with Dr. Everett Dennis, Dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar. We're discussing a new report called Media Use in the Middle East, a five-year retrospective.
And Dr. Dennis, as I said earlier, you are not just dean, but CEO at Northwestern University in Qatar. Do you see this social media at any point being part of, or do you see your students at Northwestern University somehow using this information about social media to move their stories, their broadcast journalism uh, stories into maybe a Snapchat realm or Instagram realm? Yes, absolutely. They're driving, trying to drive traffic to their stories and the materials they're working on to all kinds of places. And some of them publish you know, exclusively in social media. People can easily start a YouTube channel or a website. Uh, and a good many of our students have actually been up some something of entrepreneurs starting small businesses that are web-related that come out of uh, social media realm. So it's all a good development, I think. And as you stated, you started looking at this about five years ago. Has the study surprised you in any way? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the uh, uh, sometimes uh, when you think there are great strides in some areas, there aren't. It surprised us, too, that, for example, you think of women in Saudi Arabia being somewhat depressed, and that's definitely true. The lively uh, communication that takes place, that this, the discourse between and among women in Saudi and some other somewhat repressive states is amazing, you know, and the, the, the push for change in a lot of areas is not always directly political, but it's on consumer issues, on family matters, it's on the kinds of things where that influence is felt. So you see a, you see lively discourse. Uh, and also in some of our studies uh, beyond social media, we see uh, motion pictures, for example, women being more and more involved in as film producers and directors across the region. There's a lively and growing motion picture industry, film and cinema activity. And so these things do surprise us. And also, I think some of the uh, credibility of international media, which we think of as sort of sacrosanct, uh, uh, has lost some of its gusto and strength in the Middle East and in recent years. And that's somewhat regrettable since some of those outlets are among the best in the world. Can you tell me, Dr. Dennis, what um, those in the Middle East think of uh, the United States media? Well, that's a mixed bag. Uh, initially, I'd say uh, American media greatly admired, whether it's uh, uh, our news programming, whether it's entertainment channels or whatever, they're, they're in, in, and certainly sports and other there's a, there's a great hunger for all of that. At the same time, uh, people want more and more of their own local uh, outlets, and they're also very critical of the image of the Arab world in uh, in U.S. media. They feel it's very biased. Uh, uh, and, and not very discerning sometimes and not understanding of what's going on. They think it's also very uh, anti-Muslim. Issues are, are certainly there. And then, of course, uh, depending on who's president and what the foreign policy is, there are attitudes, you know, what people know about the U.S. come through media channels and outlets and, and be positive or negative. They don't get everything that, that we have in the U.S. They don't have every one of the cable channels, but a lot of them. Uh, and they have a lot of others. And so they see diversity coming from many, many other countries. I mean, maybe, you know, four or five, six hundred channels that one can get. Of course, the reality is with any cable system, people probably hang, you know, still pay attention to about six channels. They may have 600, but they don't use them all. However, the access is there. So in Qatar, for example, we can see. Uh, you know, Russian television, of course, was very biased. We can see television from India, from from Japan, from uh, from African states uh, and elsewhere, uh, and be able to compare 
if you want to do it, and what's going on in the world, depending on you know who's reporting it. So you get, you can look at the U.S. through several lenses, and our students certainly do that. And notice that the way they're being portrayed by the U.S. isn't necessarily favorable to them. Uh, that's right. Absolutely, they feel that they're great treasures. We're opening a museum of, of of news and media called the the Media Magilus. Magilus being a gathering place at NUQ in the fall, uh, and the first exhibition is on uh, Arab identities. That is, the images of the Arab world, starting out in film, uh, because you know you get uh, stereotypes and many many biases and not across the. The world and a lot of them, those that come from the U.S. are very predictable. Those are changing. They're getting better. They're getting more complex. Uh, the Arab figure in a sitcom is not a sitcom, but a dramatic uh, TV show isn't necessarily a villain anymore. But you know that old image uh, hangs on, and people worry about it. How has the political landscape in the Middle East changed over the past five years of when you started the study till now? Well, uh, there was great upheaval and a, uh, uh, the appearance of uh, incredible uh, political change in Egypt, you may recall, and in Libya and in other places. And so there was a great sense of hope that there was going to be something that would be akin to the Europe, Eastern European revolutions, the Central Europe revolutions of uh, 1989. That did not obviously materialize. There were different factors at work. And even looking at it from that perspective was probably wrong. You don't you don't have enormous uh, political upheaval and change uh, with, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in an instant. And this is something very much in the making. So there's been backsliding, in my opinion, in some areas, uh, uh, some pretty draconian governments that have taken over. And I think that strong men in Egypt and in in Turkey, which is not exactly the Middle East, is very, very evident. And so there's concern about that. And where we are, where was a blockade. Four of our neighbors in Qatar created a blockade of air traffic and, and commerce. Uh, and it's also been accompanied by an information war. There's an enormous amount of money that's been spent on an information war to discredit the state of Qatar, and then Qatar responds back. In fact, the whole blockade began as a hack of a website where false news or fake news was put on a, a, the Qatar News Agency website, and that was the spark that set off this blockade and led to enormous amount of coverage in the world media and, and fights back and forth between these countries, still unresolved. But you see um, a, 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 ne a negative impact of social media there were content farms and deliberate efforts to uh, disinformation are true. and so. We're trying to navigate that and figure that out, and our students are very, very adept at analyzing uh, messages coming in because sometimes they are extraordinarily uh, dangerous. They may have to do with a coup that didn't happen, or a road being closed, or something else. And there's been, you know, charges of being building a ditch between Saudi Arabia and Qatar and fill it with nuclear waste and things like that. So. Uh, these are very serious matters, and, and media is one way to, to monitor what's going on. And what do you hope to use the research in the study for? We talked a little bit about forming some of the students at, uh, at NUQ, but what else do you want to use this study for? Well, we take it around the world. We, uh, we, we first, the first thing is we contribute all the data for the Middle East to the World Internet Project, which is run by uh, Jeffrey Cole at the University of the Edinburgh School at the University of Southern California. And so we contribute to the whole worldwide 
analysis of what's going on out there. Uh, we take it to industry meetings and to, to media companies, to journalists and others. They find it useful. Advertising agencies do as well. So there's a commercial and a, uh, a professional uh, connection. And then we go to scholarly meetings. We have this summer we have people going to two or three major meetings and presenting the data. We presenting it in Washington, D.C. in uh, August uh, 6th, our retrospective. We published, every year we publish a very substantial report and a website at www.mideastmedia.org. And this year, so we've had five volumes to date, the sixth one being prepared. And this year we added a, a, what's a seventh volume now called five year, uh, the five-year retrospective of media use in the Middle East. And that gives comparisons across between and among countries, and between and across the the region over this period of time, with breakdowns for gender and uh, age and nationality and other factors that are important in kind of understanding who does what, and as you try to connect the audience, but we're, we really want to engage in thought leadership on on this stuff because it's and of course there's there's such studies are going on in the United States, but we're the only other one outside of the U.S. which is quite as extensive. The study has 120 or so questions. It's uh, we have this year we interviewed with our vendor helping uh, uh, over 7,500 people in, in uh, seven countries, uh, and uh, so it's a very extensive effort. It's just not a quick uh, study by any means, or uh, an online report. It's face-to-face interviews across these countries, and we find it valuable to do this. We're grateful to the support we get from the Qatar National Media Fund and from other sources to make this happen. It's a real commitment for us and, and has, has value, we think, for our students, for our, our faculty, but beyond that, well beyond that, to the world of scholarship, to commercial and professional activity, and to foreign policy. It's the way material gets picked up by diplomats and others. We brief embassies on this and, uh, you know, happy and proud to be part of this uh, effort to generate knowledge. And even the idea of putting a name on the fact that the portrayal of those in the Middle East by Americans is something that bothers those in the Middle East. So it gives us here in the U.S. something to, something else to strive for when it comes to fairness. Absolutely. And, and it's like anything involved in the nature of prejudice, which we have in race and, and, and ethnicity and other areas and gender and, and identity across society, across the world. This is a, There's always a kind of uh, what... I used to call an acceptable prejudice, and acceptable in quotes is never acceptable uh, to be prejudiced. But people tend to say things about people in the Arab world they wouldn't say anything about any other anywhere else, you know. And uh, I think we're making some progress on that, although I think things like some of the immigration and migration issues and the travel bans and things like that have really not helped. That has kind of reinforced some of these prejudices, and that, that's regrettable. You spent a considerable amount of time in, in Qatar. I want to delve a little bit into some issues from D.C. So during a, a U.N. Security Council meeting in July, there were reports of rising tensions between Israel and Syria and the fear of another confrontation between Israel and Hamas. So do the people of Qatar or even the people in the Middle East have those same concerns? Oh, yes, absolutely. And there's been, uh, with regard to Israel, Qatar had a long-standing, very strong and positive relationship with Qatar, even a trade mission that was there. That broke down over Gaza. Uh, But Qatar is more aligned at the moment with Iran, which is its partner in the largest liquid natural gas uh, deposits in the world. And on the other side, you really have the Saudis and 
Egypt is, uh, and um, Saudis and the Israelis uh, have, are really more and more engaged, you know, in, in with Russia and others. So this is all, you know, you're basically at a juncture of basically in the middle of uh, geopolitics uh, with this changing landscape all the time. And we see this through, you know, the summits in Singapore and, and in uh, Helsinki. All this stuff comes back to the Middle East. Uh, President Trump has played a role uh, in uh, igniting, to some extent, uh, the blockade that we have faced and the, and the support that people feel or don't feel. At the same time, the U.S. relationship with Qatar is uh, complicated. We have our largest base in the Middle East there, military base, the U.S. base, and a huge American presence through the universities and other. and yet there's also tension. And so nothing is simple. You know, it's very, very complicated and uh, nuanced as these relationships evolve. And so for our students, it is a, uh, you know, it is an incredible venue to be, be in the middle of all of this and studying it and watching. And we also are very, always concerned about safety and security and their health and welfare, and we follow that as well. But, but to watch something, to be in the middle of geop geopolitical crisis, uh, has a huge advantage, I think, from a standpoint of learning about the world. And we don't desire that that happens, but if it's there, take advantage of it. And speaking of President Trump, he recently recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. How yes. did that go over in Qatar? Uh, not well at all, or across the Arab world. A, that's complicated. It's been on, been on the docket for a long, long time. But it, I, I don't think it shook the foundations of anything as people thought it might. It was certainly widely opposed by, I think, every Arab state. Uh, and uh, there was a feeling that that was going to break down and make it difficult for the United States to... Uh, be any kind of a impartial broker in any Middle East peace. And also, uh, President Trump is in the midst of, of drafting a Middle East peace plan, and he's promised, the White House says he's promised, it will be the most detailed ever. What are the people in the Middle East expecting, do you think? Not much. Uh, I mean, there have been peace plans for a long time, right. and everybody's always hopeful that any contribution to peace in the region would be um, and it would be helpful and, and supportive. But I don't think there's any um, any feeling that uh, there's going to be anything resolved very soon. The war in Yemen is a is a horrific case of genocide that's going on. A whole number of reasons that's happening. Syria, of course, is uh, is another disaster, and uh, uh, not much of a constructive nature is happening uh, on by any party, and and it's. Uh, great problems that need to be resolved. And there are also, the, these are issues that are fueling more migration and, and refugees. Uh, the problems at the base where people, you know, have to flee for their lives and, to, and, and desperately cross the Mediterranean or wherever they can go to, to get refuge. And I know we talked a little bit about how it touched on politics, but do you want to explain a little bit more the relationship of politics to the study, Media Habits in the Middle East? Well, we don't get it. Politics in the sense of whether people have a liberal or a conservative leaning, for example, will ask that. Politics in, the t in terms of do they approve of the, uh, of, do they think that their government is going in the right direction or the wrong direction. But we don't really look at political factions, parties, or anything that would be considered partisan. We're more interested in political trends and, you know, if it involves change of government, of course, that that's very important. Dr. Dennis, I want to talk a little bit about a book you co-authored called Mobile Disruptions in the Middle East. So, first of all, congratulations on that. And, Thank you. Uh, and can you summarize the book for my audience? 
Yeah, it's a, a small book, uh, and it's really designed to, uh, to to have look at the lessons we've learned in Qatar and the Arabian Gulf with regard to mobile media and what people are using mobile media for. So uh, uh, it's called we call it mobile mobile disruptions in the Middle East, and my co-authors and led by John Pavlik and my uh, colleague at Nevadale and Northwestern, Rachel Davis Mercy and Justin Gangler at Qatar University, and we really trying to look at trends and changes and the mobility of peoples. And we deal with this crisis, the the um, blockade that I mentioned, how innovation occurs. But this is all about uh, the whole concept of disruption, which, of course, is well known in the U.S. Can we get it here in the States? Oh, yeah. It's published by Routledge. Uh, and Routledge Focus, it's called, is the publisher. And uh, you can find it in some bookstores, university bookstores probably, more likely, or most people buy things by, you know, online these days. I'd like to thank Dr. Everett Dennis, Dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar. I'd also like to thank my senior producer, Marina Koff. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and keep up with our weekly podcasts online. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.